I've been out working the field since 5 a.m. What do you yeah, do? Yeah, look at him. Farmer <laughs> Nick. <laughs> Comforter and counselor, administrator and teacher, spirit-led truth seeker, minister and janitor, prophet, preacher, servant, leader, Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we sit down to talk about our experiences and challenges as pastors doing small-town ministry during uncertain times. Join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. So listeners, we have a guest on the pod. It is Pastor Nick, who is a friend of the pod and has been called out many times by Ethan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have Nick on to talk about our topic later on in the episode, but we'll just kind of do a, a quick round robin of how were your weeks this week, my friends? I, things have been uh, pretty interesting. I've moved into Charlottesville. Woo! And... Um, we have many, many weeks left of trying to unpack and get everything finished, finalized uh, in the house. But I like it. I, I enjoy it. It's, it's, of course, much, much smaller than, than, the, than the parsonage was. Because the parsonage I lived in was, was actually rather, rather big, which was weird. How big was but, it? Uh, pretty big. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like multi-floors? Like... So it was a... It's kind of it was like a long ranch style, and then the basement was was just an open basement that was finished. That was the same length of the house, and oh. in in the basement was also uh, a full bedroom and a full bathroom. Oh, so it was it was four bedrooms, three full bathrooms, and yeah. it was a lot, pretty big. But anyway, this is this is a great setup. I'm I'm enjoying smaller living. I like it, and we just still need to unpack but uh this is my last week of being a pastor Um, so it's my last at least for now and it's my last week and i'm in exile just like last week and i uh will probably end up posting a facebook live video to show folks the house and let folks see adrea and and beth and stuff like that Hmm. but uh we still got a lot after after we're done here i'm gonna keep unpacking and do different things but uh it's been good the the move in was was fairly uneventful actually nice and uh, yeah and uh you know it's hot as balls down here holy holy crap this is what i knew it was hot hot, it was hot last time i was here you know a couple um weeks ago to to move a couple of things in but it's really hot um, but it's it's been really hot, and I've been able to drink uh, cheer wine right out of the, the glass Woo! bottle. Yes. Uh, and so glass bottle cheer wine made of real cane sugar. Um, <laughs> I'm like I'm like this is it. I've I've arrived. I love cheer wine. So so it it works out. Joe and I Nick had a had a Facebook conversation yesterday about being a real Southerner. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, 
I'm drinking cheer wine and I'm living in Virginia. I must be a real Southerner. And she's like, no, 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 you will never be a real Southerner. And I was like, I, and I was like, but master, you know, <laughs> I, I, uh, I subscribe to all the commandments. I, I, I care about the war of Northern aggression. I drink cheer wine from the bottle. What do I lack? You know? And she was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> no, do you actually <laughs> care about the war of northern aggression, though. Oh, yeah, it's or uh, as or as we call it in the north, uh, the war the, that the South really fucked up real bad. And yeah, lost. the American Civil War, as I believe what it's called. Uh, hey, Nick, you know my favorite Robert E. Lee quote of all time: oh, "I surrender." Yeah. I was <laughs> I I give up. The North has defeated me. Oh, I, I like the part where he said, "Never make a statue of me," and then we <laughs> disobeyed. Oh God! Yes. Like well, that. so there's also that. <laughs> um, so pivoting to my week. Uh, speaking of the <laughs> Civil War. <laughs> uh, uh, well, so here's else. here's the thing: is that um. My father grew up in Pennsylvania, moved down to the South in like 1985 and is still a Yankee. So like, there's no, there's no way of becoming from here because there's a real sense of place here. Uh, maybe in Charlottesville it's different, but like, uh, just like I would, this is, this is a conversation that Ian and I have a lot uh, because I, he's like, well, I don't want to live below the Mason-Dixon line, which makes sense. He's a large brown man. Uh, but racism is also everywhere. So there's that. Um, <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> argument. Well, listen, you're going you're gonna to be racist. You're going to find racism anywhere. So you have two options. You can come and live below the Mason-Dixon line or give up. Yeah, uh, it's mostly he's pivoted to talking about how he doesn't like the heat down here, which is fair. Our heat has water in it, so it's not great. Um, there's just so much so much humidity uh, around. It's a lot. It, you get used to it. We lived in D.C. It's not any worse it's, than D.C. It's a, stup it's a stupid swamp town. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's a stupid, there's a, there's a region of the same type of air down here. Um yeah so the like there's just a you just don't get to you just don't get to which is uh which leads me to the commissioner's meeting that i spoke at so our local confederate statue needs to come down and i being a group of people have been talking about how to do that and all those kind of things and the county commissioners are technically the people that we have to appeal to in order to take it down uh and it, they opened up public comment which was their mistake and it's actually all of the comments were people who were pro taking the statue down and one poor dear lady who has started um a nonprofit where she teaches people who like are uh, like getting food from food pantries, how to cook the food they have at the food pantries. She's like, I'm just asking that you fund this. And she was up at the beginning of the, the comments. And so then everyone else was like, tear down the statue. Also, that sounds like a great nonprofit. And we think that you should fund that too. It was an interesting dynamic. Uh, but so we went before the county commissioners, gave our arguments for taking the statue down. Uh, one of the commissioners talked about how he's, from Kansas and he's a Jayhawk and I don't know what his point was. 
uh, and then the other one mumbled off mic about something and I didn't get to hear it because I was too busy fielding a call from my uh, treasurer, who's also our recording secretary, which is why I forgot what to call her. Uh, somebody that we gave an outreach check to, which is what we call our like Christian aid stuff, had taken the account number and the routing number and instead taken more money than he was supposed to. Smart. So we had to approve changing our account number. <laughs> yeah. So I missed part of the meeting because of that. Uh, and so that, like, that was actually just my yesterday. But it, I, Ian and I had a fight. It was a fight over um, what I was going to say before the commissioners. Because he was like, you're real sympathetic to the Confederacy in this. And I'm like, but think about the room that I have to appeal to. Right? Like, these are people. racist. <laughs> racist <laughs> <laughs> everyone all white people are racist <laughs> especially confederates oh god right, no no i'm sorry i'm sorry i am one now joe as a fellow confederate joe i i, I agree oh, i think shit. that <laughs> you just live here oh my god if you I were in north carolina i would be like you have not been a, a real north carolinian until you've had a lake norman but that We'll pass on that. What if I went to the most prestigious North Carolinian university? Fuck you and the horse you rode in on. University. God! <laughs> ah! See, I'm usually fine about this because I'm used to being a southerner who's in the north and just has to apologize for my existence, which is, is legit. Uh, but <laughs> down here, like, there are rules and you're not following them. And they're not rules against black people. They are rules for other white people. <laughs> anyway. That's interesting. I'm happy to be the only representation of the winning side of that war on this podcast today. Why Joe, and I, Joe and I tear up when we think of the sack of Richmond. So don't you even, don't you even <sighs> worry about that. That being said, Pennsylvania is a confused fucking place because there are so many Confederate flags in Pennsylvania they really, really forget which side of the war they were on. <laughs> Joe, Joe has family from Altoona. I do. I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, my, my grandfather moved around a lot because he was a high school football coach. And, you know, I don't know why that means that he moved, but they moved a lot. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what y'all do to teachers in Pennsylvania, but they moved a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway. So that's why I'm feeling a lot of tension in this space at this moment, because like, oh God. it's like in high school when they banned the Confederate flag at school and the, uh, the counter argument was, but like everybody wears Dixie outfitters and it's in the logo. Like some kids won't have clothes if you ban the Confederate flag. And I realize how bonkers that sounds now, but it was a legitimate argument at the time. And I... Uh, you have to like do the do the lip service to I understand that you had a great grandfather who didn't own slaves and so you think that you are in the clear on this so uh, sure like remember that your family fought in the Civil War like we could we can't ignore the Civil War it's still impacting literally everything we do but at the same time we don't need a statue because it was 
made in Ohio out of chemicals that are like disintegrate out of metal that is disintegrating like at this moment. Uh, and it's really just here to intimidate black and brown people. And we didn't even have a ton of black people. We just had the Cherokee that were still in the region. So like you weren't even really intimidating anybody with it. You just wanted a statue of your own. And do you really want to be the last person with a statue? Because Governor Cooper is taking all the ones in Raleigh because uh, people took down one and uh, hung it up over a light pole. So... Like, it's a public health concern. The The state passed a law in 2015. Thanks, uh, the 2015 North Carolina legislature, y'all are assholes, uh, that says that you can't take, you can't remove um, monuments of heritage without meeting, like, these specific standards. It's a bunch of bullshit. So, yeah, I just, like, it's, a, we, and this is what we'll talk about in our in our topic, but, like, talking to white people about race i don't know whether we like push them into the deep end and watch them drown or whether we like walk them forward and so that was what the fight over that my statement was was that i was like tiptoeing into the water of maybe please remove this commissioner it's going to be fine uh and then in the end i came out and i was like my lord jesus says that we stand against hate i pray for you and your work <laughs> so that was my statement uh, yeah. Uh, and then before that, God, it's just, it has been a whirlwind of things. I was at an NAACP meeting for this, um, I, where like the, the Democrat, the representative of the Democratic Party was like, well, we're worried about how it hurts votes. And I was like, well, you know, this is why I hesitate to vote Democrat sometimes. There's just not a better option. Uh, and then like, in terms of just like pastor stuff this week, it's been, um, there's there's been a lot of like setting things up for the new church and like getting things recorded the sermon that i recorded on sunday uh was i used the temptation of christ to say that we're tempted to not call out white supremacy but we have to so let's get going uh and i have gotten no feedback from that so i don't know what to do so i feel like i'm in an island right now um but i'm going to go to the church later today and i'm going to pick the squash that has grown and save it for the food pantry and and we'll go from there nick um, how was your week oh boy there's so much going on um it's kind of crazy here i'm uh for the listeners i'm in a setting similar to ethan's setting except mine's a little bit more rural ethan was in more of a town i'm more your traditional mm -hmm. rural community everybody's spread out there's farm fields um it's a close-knit community because everybody seems to know everybody, uh, but also that means that it's sometimes harder to get certain things moving. I don't know. It's It can be confusing sometimes. Anyway, we're still in the midst of the COVID crisis, um, and our county is green at this point, which I don't know if other states are using that metric or not, but for us in Pennsylvania, if we're in the green phase, that means we're allowed to gather with up to 250 people as long as they're wearing masks and standing six feet apart. Um, and as uh, far as church services are concerned, the conference, because the state's not allowed to mandate what our, what our services look like. They're not, we can do technically whatever we want as far as the state is concerned, but our conference has given us some guidelines on what 
they think the green face should look like. Um, and it's basically that uh, you can have up to 250 people as long as they can be in family groups six feet apart. Uh, but we're not supposed to do any singing. Uh, we're not supposed to do any real call and response stuff. There's no shaking hands and greeting people. Uh, there's no passing offering plates. And we're at this time not allowed to do any communion. Um, so basically hardly much of a worship service at all. So what we're doing is we're doing the kind of the drive-in service that you're seeing a lot of churches doing during this whole time where people come and they park in the parking lot. Uh, and they brought somebody brought their trailer that we like put like speakers and a microphone and a little pulpit up for me. And I stand on this trailer and I do my whole service from there and people can kind of sing from their cars and nobody can hear anybody else singing, but at least we can sing. Um, and that's been kind of nice. And so we just sort of this past week, we agreed that we're going to continue to do these drive-in services until uh, August. And we're going to see what things look like in August, um, on whether or not we're going to start moving into our sanctuary again or not. So some people, you know, are very safety minded and want to take their time on this. And then some of my people are very frustrated that, you know, we're not, they don't understand why we can't just meet in the church to them being in green means, Hey, we should get back together again. So, you know, I, I get calls from them and I get messages on Facebook from them and there's some people frustrated, but mostly people are okay with whatever we've sort of decided on this. Um, our food pantry uh, just fed 150 families this past Friday, which for a small rural community is a really, really big deal. Yeah. Um, and that was, that's really cool. Uh, somebody's, apartment burned down this week who's not from our church but is in our community and part of uh, one of the things we have at our church is we have a clothing room which hasn't been operating during this time but we always have supplies in case there ever is a fire or some kind of disaster and people need basic supplies so I've been reaching out to people in this person's life that I know um, and we've been kind of coordinating how to get her basic necessity she's got a toddler and an eight-year-old and she's pregnant wow. um wow so just trying to get like maternity clothes clothes for a toddler and uh, stuff for an eight-year-old and we're trying to get some like toys for them and just like things like that just just small things that are kind of needed right now so we've been, we've been doing that this week um and then also this week we're planning vbs which is why listeners can't see but i'm dressed like a farmer right now because <laughs> we're doing a farming theme VBS and obviously we can't do VBS in person. So we're filming just a series of YouTube videos uh, so that families can, and they'll release each day of the quote unquote, the week of VBS, right? So like Monday, the Monday video will release Tuesday, the Tuesday video will release. And that's just going to be like an intro skit thing from me. There's going to be like, um, uh, like a craft time where one of my volunteers demonstrates how to do the craft and they'll pick up these kits beforehand and have everything they need to do the like crafts and the games and things like that. Um, and then I will do like a Bible story and then we're doing a separate series of it for like preschoolers where instead of me doing a Bible story, we're doing like a puppet show. Oh. And one of my congregants has created these like, professional grade puppets 
Wow. Uh, look ridiculously good. And I was like, how did you learn to do this? And she was like, oh, YouTube. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> cool. Uh, so I have some good leadership here that helps out with a lot of this stuff and makes it easier. But we're doing all that filming later today. So it's going to be a crazy day. But the big thing that happened for me in ministry this week, that's sort of everything that we're kind of doing in a general sense. But I got to go into the hospital for the first time. Oh. Uh, since this whole thing happened. I have a congregant who is suffering from stage four cancer in both breasts and both lungs. Um, and this came on very suddenly. Uh, and she was traveling with her husband when she was diagnosed. They were in Florida uh, in their camper. And suddenly she had to go to the hospital and they figured all this out. And so she was stuck in Florida through the COVID crisis, couldn't really travel, couldn't really leave, found out she had all this stuff happening and like just wanted to get home, just got home this past week and like spent, you know, two days at home and then had to go into the hospital again. Um, and so they, uh, it's been really weird. Cause like I said, our County is in green, which means that there's some more openness, but the County where the hospitals are is still in yellow. And in yellow, there's a lot more restrictions and regulations. And so most hospitals are, were not letting clergy into the building at all. Um, I imagine they have their own chaplains on staff, but they weren't letting external clergy in. So um, I thought, you know, they were starting to let her family in to see her a little bit, which I thought was them loosening up. So I threw on my collar uh, did my hair real nice, put my glasses on, you know, things that make you <laughs> feel real professional. Mm -hmm. uh, because when you're young and in ministry, you need to put on the costume in order to, to get through some things. Uh, and they, they scanned me and they let me in, no problem. So it was my first time in the hospital since all this has happened. And she's in rough shape. And I got to talk with her husband for like an hour and a half in the hallway. And we started Basically, we started the grieving process because she's just going downhill pretty fast. Um, and it was rough because this woman uh, was my secretary when I got here. And this is my first charge. So this woman's actually kind of important to me because when you come into ministry as a young person, like I've been in school my entire life, right? I've never done anything but school. And then suddenly I'm out of seminary and they put me into this charge and they're like, okay, go be a big boy now, right? Like go figure out how to do this thing. And like we have seminary training, but I'm sure I know you two both know, I've heard you talk about it. The imposter syndrome is real, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you just don't know if you know what you're supposed to be doing. You're thrown into a community where you don't know anybody or any of the dynamics. Uh, and it's really intimidating. And I have chronic anxiety. So I was just like, I was overwhelmed with everything. And this woman was somebody who's very in touch with everybody in the community, knew everybody, knew all the inner workings of everything in the church, and very graciously like would walk me through these things, point things out, help me figure out all that stuff so that I could assimilate into this community better and really figure out what my expected role was as a pastor in this community. And I'm always going to be grateful to her for that. She's always going to be special to me in that way. So it was just, it was a very difficult visit um, on top of trying to remember what it is after three months to do your job and actually go out to a hospital for the first time. Uh, because you really kind of, for you kind of forget 
not completely, yeah. but like it's still, you know, it's it's like okay, how what are the proper ways to behave here again? How do I act with compassion and not uh, throw my own grief upon them and all that stuff? So it's been an interesting roller coaster of a week for me, um, but we're also uh, planning on, I just opened my Bible study back up on Monday. Uh, we're meeting in person and we're gonna, we just finished Rachel Held Evans book, uh, inspired. And we're going to move into the book of James next, which is only five chapters. So it shouldn't take us long to get through. And then we're going to move into some anti-racist literature. And I know that's kind of like what you want to talk about this week. So maybe that's your lead in. I don't know. There you go. That's 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 been kind of my week. Yeah, that's, I am intimidated by the amount of things you're doing. Uh, You just get used to it. Whenever he tells me about it, I'm like, that sounds like an awful lot of stuff. Anyway, bye, you know, and then I go and I I chill at my house. (laughs) Well, we're also, I mean, there's always more too, right? Like I'm making phone calls all week long to everybody. I've got like three or four people dying right now. Uh, I, uh, am trying to figure out what to do with the youth because my wife and I kind of run the youth ministry by ourselves right now. Uh, and we're trying to figure out how to connect with them without necessarily getting together in person yet. Uh, so we started like this messenger group, uh, where they can communicate with each other. There, there's, there's a ton of stuff happening all the time around here. It's just sort of. How many people are at your church? I got two churches. The majority of everything I just said is coming from the bigger church because the smaller church doesn't, I mean, to be blunt, they just don't do anything. Like they want me to come run a worship service. And then like, if they're dying in the hospital, come pray with them. And that's pretty much all they want from me. And, but they're a younger on, they're on the younger side, which is surprising. Usually the smaller churches are older, but they're actually on the younger side for, for our denomination. So I don't have too much to go do with them. So especially through this time where we haven't even been meeting, although this is the first week they're going to start meeting in person again. So I'm planning that as well. What does it look like for them to get together? Because there's only like 20 of them in their church. So it's not a big deal, but my bigger church has, I mean, when we were in worship, you know, in our sanctuaries before COVID hit, we were averaging 80, 80 ish people. Oh. And then the smaller church was averaging 20 to 30, depending on the week. Um, our, of course, like everybody else, our numbers look weird and are kind of hard to measure right now with online, doing everything online. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, but that's generally what we're looking at as far as people who show up for church. But, but I consider this whole community to be my parishioners in a sense, because we are doing outreach to the community. So like back when it was possible, I was out meeting as many people as I could in whatever very limited spaces I have around here to do that. Um, So I know a lot of people. I talk to a lot of people on Messenger. They'll reach out to me. I do a lot of ministry through Facebook Messenger. Um, I do a lot of my counseling through Facebook Messenger because younger people would much rather send you a message at two o'clock in the morning when their anxiety is attacking them than try to set up an appointment with you in like a week where they would come in at like noon on their lunch break and then go, yeah, I don't really remember why I wanted to even talk to you. Right. So messenger has been very effective, but yeah, so it's, it's strange. And are you a licensed local pastor? Are you, where are you at in the process? 
Yeah, I'm a licensed local pastor, and every year I change my mind as to whether or not I'm going to pursue ordination or not. Uh, <laughs> like, I was pretty sure, like, two months ago that I was absolutely about to dive into the ordination process completely, and then I just had my one-on-one with my DS, like, a week ago, and I was basically like, yeah, I don't really want to do this. Um, I really struggle with seeing the difference between what I'm doing now as a licensed local pastor and what I would be doing as an ordained elder. I feel like I'm living into my call and the pursuit of eldership to me for myself mostly feels like a selfish endeavor for a credential, which Ethan will yell at me for here in a minute because he always tells me I should get the credential in case like we ever have to leave. Uh, oh no, I've totally changed my mind on that. I actually, think Oh, this is a, great. I think that if you get a UMC credential now, you'll be blacklisted in the next five years. That's <laughs> actually what I, that's actually what I think legitimately. I sort of um, started feeling that way too, which is kind of yeah. the conversation I had with my DS uh, about it, which was, I said, you know, I really don't think we're going to have any credibility in the next five yeah. years. I really don't feel like I want an ordained credential from the Methodist church right now with the way mm-hmm. things are. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we're going to exist much going forward. Um, and I told her about, I mean, I laid into her and it wasn't her fault. Like I like my DS a lot, actually. Like I really like my DS, uh, but I hate our conference. Mm. I hate our conference. Y'all's they, conference sucks. They they drive me up a wall. And uh, and I'm really frustrated with the denomination as a whole as well. Um, but yeah, I, uh, yep, that's kind of that for me. Okay. That all makes yep. sense. I was just trying to place you for our listeners. I'm still trying to place me too, Joe. So that makes <laughs> a lot of sense. It's confusing. Yeah. There's almost a way in which as uh, licensed local pastors, we have a little more freedom because we're not beholden to elder expectations. True. And so um, we can do a lot of like innovative stuff that elders are, like would be afraid of doing because I don't know. They belong to the club, but uh, yeah, we can just kind of do what we want to do. And they hold us to a little bit of a different standard. We can't vote on anything, but uh, you know, hadn't we changed vote anything on stuff. Well, it depends uh, in our conference at least. So there's certain things we're not allowed to vote on like mm-hmm. very specific things, but like we were just like last year's annual conference. Uh, we were able to vote on quite a lot of things. Um Mm-hmm. And, and and I can vote on enough things that I feel that I have enough say in our conference. I couldn't go to general conference as a delegate because I don't fit into any category. Right. I couldn't go as a clergy representative and I don't count as a lay person to go as a lay representative. So like we joke about this all the time, like Ian, who's been on this podcast quite a few times, uh, had opted to stay a lay person so that he could go make a difference at general conference because he could get elected to general conference. I can't do that as a licensed local pastor. So like I lose that kind of power if I wanted to be more politically active and uh, trying to push for political changes in the church, then I would have to give up my position or really push forward to become a clergy in the elder sense. Um, But I just, I just don't know that that's where my ministry lies. So I'm comfortable enough with what I'm doing. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. Cool. Now, cool. now Nick, Nick does have to get a demon though. That is something he has to do. <laughs> Um, because he, he called it into existence when I was applying to, to, to doctorates. And he was like, if you get into somewhere, I'll go get a demon. And I'm like, okay. And so he, he now, uh, when I, in order to break the news that I got into UVA, I started sending him links to demon programs. I'm like, well, you get this program. For, for listeners, I think it's important to note that like, what Ethan's doing with the PhD work is very, it's very academic, very theological focused. Whereas a demon, a doctorate ministry is, is more geared towards practical application of things. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you go for a doctorate of ministry, um, in my mind, at least it is lesser than a PhD as far as like the academic world is concerned. It's it doesn't different. have, the same prestige, but like it's geared towards like working pastors. Like how do you take mm -hmm. something and apply? So, so when I told Ethan, if he got into a PhD program, I'd go to a demon program. I was like, when you do your theological work, I will then go and take your theological work and make it practical for, for practice. Yeah, it's, it's a rewriting of history. <laughs> that is it's not a rewriting exactly of history. This is a, this is like I'll go into a demon program, and I'm like, okay, well, you're fine, good luck. And then, and then when I got in, he was like, now hang on, hang on, just a second, hang on. Just a second. That's that's not that's not exactly how it went. I was like, oh, well, that's kind of how I remember it. You can always go back to Leslie. I I mean, Ethan wants me to go to other places because he's the one obsessed with institutions of education. I am. Uh, but I, I hear that Duke has a great demon. But I'm definitely just going to go back to Wesley because all I have to do is send them an email and they're just going to put me in the program and I'm lazy ultimately. So mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you, you know, you probably could just send them an email. You could probably send anybody an email from Wesley and they'll be like, oh, yeah, hang on. You know, you're in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like mention it around Chip and he'll be like, yes, great. Yeah, I'll, do I'll do it for you. <laughs> we'll fill the whole thing out. Oh my God. You just need to sign the check. That was basically <laughs> how I got into Wesley for my master's of divinity program. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> we love you, Wesley, but your, your application process is not. To I feel like almost anybody who has gone through higher education, we all have a similar relationship to the institution that we attended. We both love and hate it in equal yeah. measure. Like you yeah. see, you appreciate what you get out of it and you usually appreciate some of your professors and the people who guided you. And you often find that you hate institutions and the institution of Wesley Theological Seminary is atrocious. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the opposite of my experience with Carolina and with the University of Edinburgh. Like, I, um, for both of those, I, the institution was neutral. It was a neutral evil. Uh, mostly because Carolina gave me a full ride. So, like, I really can't be angry at them. Uh, and we tore down the Confederate statue, so we were improving. <laughs> um, but then at Edinburgh, I was mostly angry at the the British visa system, uh, but not really at the institution. But then I got to Wesley, and I'm like, uh, oh, oh, I see. I understand what people mean here now. <laughs> so, but I I really drank the Kool Aid at Carolina, and I'm unrepentant about that. So. I can I can tell. Shut. I can tell. It's a great place. Anyway. Um. So racism. <laughs> racism. Racism is bad. Okay. 
<laughs> I, so do y'all, I feel like there are maybe two big tracks of um, addressing the current uh, racial conversation in the United States. Uh, there is the, um, what I want to call the Corey track, a uh, Corey friend of the pod. Uh, <laughs> okay. I know exactly be, where this, this could is be. Going. This, this could be great. anything, actually. The Corey track, which is, <laughs> I don't know. What, what would you say uh, the Corey track is? To be intentionally provocative. Uh, oh, I see. Without a consideration of relationship with your people, or without <laughs> without prioritizing your relationship with your people, without kind of prioritizing. like prioritizing. Sure. Yeah, yeah. This is this is the truth. I need you people to figure it out, and I don't care if I piss you off along the way. And then there is the like, um, a scared white people in my conference route, which is to just preach about fear and why fear is bad. And maybe we shouldn't fear things. And Jesus calls mm. us to love um, without actually naming the problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what I am struggling with is that I uh, don't have it in me to do the Corey route because I don't want the fallout from that. And because also like I am in my core an educator. And so I want to approach each of the people that I'm trying to educate with methods that are going to get them to what I need them to learn rather than just like throwing a, like a blank, a blanket over everything and being like, great, figure it out. Um, but I also like can't countenance the not talking about it at all. Um, so, or like talking about it in a way that uh, coddles racist. Because I feel like people who are, um, who are unrepentant racists in the face of the news at this time are people who need to be shook a little. Like there's, there's real truth to that. Um, and if they, if in that shaking, they're like, well, the church is, uh, is clearly racist against white people and I don't want to be here anymore, then they're not people that I'm going to reach, right? Like they are, they have removed themselves from being part of my mission. But I, I don't, I'm trying to figure out what the balance is that I can both like, um, sleep at night in terms of making sure that I am challenging people who need to be challenged, but also, uh, not, excluding people who if I took just a little bit different of attack would be able to come to the table. And so that's, that's where I'm at with it. And I, I want to hear y'all's thoughts about all that. It's the conflict of pastor versus prophet, right? Like what's the, what's the right space? What's the right time to be the prophet and what's the right time to be the pastoral caring, mm -hmm. graceful voice. Um, I struggle with this so much, Joe, like so, so much. You don't even know. Um, I've, I've done both at this point. Uh, I've done sort of the Corey approach, not as extreme as our friend Corey, uh, who's really gone just balls deep into it as much as he can. Um, but I've definitely done that. I've taken that approach, like preach boldly from the pulpit and blast stuff out there on Facebook and put it out there. Um, and then uh, I got my first real like fallout from my congregation. I have a very gracious congregation. 
I should point that out. They, I they do too, essentially. with me on things, but I have a very gracious group of people who, even when they disagree with me, are, are willing to, to say, admittedly condescendingly, but I'll still take it. Uh, well, well, he's young. He has a lot to learn. We can't really hold this against him right now, <laughs> um, which they have said directly uh, to me uh, or about me while I was in the room. Uh, you know, right. fun. Uh, but they really are gracious to me. Um, but they, I posted a Facebook post during this COVID thing that had nothing to do with racism and had to do with the protests that were starting to happen about not wearing masks anymore, where people were going that. out with their AK-47s and they were marching in the square without their masks on real close to each other. Um, and I got real pissed about that. And I wrote a very inflammatory Facebook post. And that was, because I am a dramatic person, a very dramatic Facebook post. Um, and they got very upset with that. And that was the first time that they called the SPRC on me uh, together to talk about stuff. And I apologize because, and I said, like, I'm not taking aback my sentiments, but the language I used was a little too extreme. You know, I, at the very end, I said, I expect your stint in hell will be long. Uh, and, That's what uh, you said. I was trying to remember what the phrasing was. He really didn't like that. Um, you took it down, right? I did. Yeah. Uh, first, I edited it and changed it to get rid of some of that. But people had screenshotted it and printed it out and were passing it around in the community around me. Um, and so I took it down. I wrote up this apology. I apologized again in my SPRC meeting. And it kind of took the mask off of who my congregation is for me um, and what they really are thinking about me and what they really want from me. Uh, and so after like three years, it kind of broke this illusion that I could just sort of say whatever I wanted and get away with it. Uh, and so since then, I have gone through many stages of, I guess, grief almost over losing that illusion. and. Um, you know, I'm at a point where I'm not really preaching prophetically. Mm. I'm just not. Uh, in this time, I am, I am preaching a, a little bit more. I, I'm, I've neutered my language a lot. I'm really sticking to like being a pretty bad motivational speaker uh, <laughs> because that's ultimately what they want from me right now. Um, we are still in the middle of a pandemic and people are still frightened about so many things. Absolutely. And, and I realized that that's what I'm paid to do. Like they pay me to make them feel better on Sunday. They, many of them, especially with the smaller church, like they, they don't actually want me to be their pastor. It's becoming pretty clear. Uh, they actually want a wor a a song leader. Uh, they want a master of ceremonies for their feel good service on Sunday morning. And if that's why they're paying me, then that's what I'll do. And then, so the way I'm looking at it now is that's kind of what my job is. I'm paid to do that. And then I lead a underground secret church uh, in my <laughs> small groups. Very Bonhoeffer. Uh, but, but, but seriously, like I do all of my pastoral work either in grief counseling, which is where some of the best pastoral ministry happens. You can talk very openly and bluntly 
in the midst of grief. Um, so I've done my best work there and in my small, my small group ministries that want to read more provocative material. We didn't start there. We started slowly and we, we built up to this point. Um, but when I, you know, we finish up the, this last book and I say, you know, some of you seem, I have one youth who comes to my Bible study group. He's 17. Uh, and he's very theologically minded, and he wants us to read James Cone, Crossing the Lynching Tree. Is uh, this, uh, are we comfortable calling him out by name? Because I'm sure Justin is going to listen to this. <laughs> well, you just said it, so there you go. Um, Justin, if you don't want this on a podcast, I'll edit it out later. But hi, friend of the pod, friend of my partner, Ian. Yes, Justin is a great kid and often makes me feel very stupid uh, because <laughs> he's incredibly intelligent and I'm not actually. Like I have a lot of education and I have some experience, uh, but I'm really not the smartest person and he's very intelligent. So sometimes he intimidates me. Uh, leave that out. He doesn't articulate. need that. He doesn't need to hear that. I try to keep his head from getting too... <laughs> I can do uh, <laughs> I can replace it with his Facebook posts are very articulate. He's very articulate. He's very well read. He's very smart. Uh, and he wants to recross in the lynching tree. And I was like, well, my group is not a highly educated group. They're mm -hmm. just not. And getting through Rachel Held Evans was not hard, but it was definitely pushing them. Is at the you know? upper end of their range. And so I'm worried about jumping into something as dense as Cone. But I'm also worried about jumping into Cone right away. Not because I think Cone's bad to read. If, if you want to do some anti-racist reading, uh, one, Cone is one that is often left off of the book lists that I see that go around. Like, hey, do you want to educate yourself as a white person? on racism and what you need to know, here's a book list. And Cone is rarely on that list because Cone is very specifically theological. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you are a theologically minded person and you really want to see some more conversation about how God plays into all of this, then you actually must read Cone, uh, in my opinion. There's no getting around it. You, you will have to encounter the cross of the lynching tree at some point. Um, but is that the place to start was the question. And so I'm finishing up right now. My wife and I are reading uh, White Fragility, um, which is often on these anti-racist book lists as well. It's written by a white woman about examining ourselves as white people. Um, and I think that it is very good. And I think it is a very good starting place uh, because I don't believe that white people who live in an area, in a context like I'm doing ministry in, where it is in the 90% Caucasian, when you look at the census numbers, um, you can't really begin to do this conversation on racism until you've actually unpacked your own implicit biases. Mm -hmm. And somebody like James Cone does not give a shit or have any time to help you unpack your internalized biases. He just doesn't. Because it's not uh, his job. It's not his job. And he very specifically wants to theologically call out 
the demonic powers of racism. And white people have a very, very, very hard time hearing that mm-hmm. without immediately getting defensive and therefore hearing none of it at all and internalizing nothing that he has to say until you've unpacked some of the stuff already in you. And I think that this book, White Fragility, does a very good job of walking white people through what's going on inside of us, why we need to unpack it, and doing it with, I believe she exhibits a good bit of grace in the midst of it. Um, okay. And it's, it's not too hard a book to get through. Um, and so we're going to start there. Uh, we had a whole conversation about this at our Bible study where we were like, well, we need to read something from the Bible first because it's been a long time since we've actually been in the Bible and we needed to do that. And I thought James would be quick and also very good leading into this. So we're going to do James and then we're going to move into white fragility and then we'll talk about it and re-examine it. But the plan is to move into crossing the lynching tree after that um, and give it a try and see how we do with it. So it's going to be kind of an experiment. Uh, but I would was expecting more pushback on this mm-hmm. when I presented it. Uh, and there really wasn't pushback. I, I brought it up. I talked about it. I talked about me and Justin's conversations about it. Justin was there. And, um, and I said, what do you, and I told them, I'm very honest with my feelings. I, I try to be very authentic with them. I'm like, listen, guys, I'm super nervous to present this to you because I do not know how you're going to take this. It's a very divisive thing right now. It has a tendency to tear us all apart. I know my family is like utterly torn apart over this whole thing. Mm. Um, I, you know, I come from a very Republican conservative family and Angie and I'm just need to sit quietly when we go visit our families basically especially with the racial issues because it's very all all lives matter in those households and it's very hard to have uh conversations um but so i told them like i'm very nervous to present this to you but it does seem like if there is ever a time to do this now's a good time to jump in uh and the one woman who's very quiet very stoic And when you have a very stoic uh, uh, lady in a very conservative area like this, you tend to just make the assumption that she's a very conservative person. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is not true, it turns out, because uh, I ask, and she who usually never talks speaks up and goes, well, I think we need this. And so I was like, okay, all right. And then I guess that is what we will do. Um, and I think I'm very fortunate to have cultivated this group, this small group to be in a place where we can do this. We didn't just start with this. Like I, when I started this group, we started with like reading Jeremiah and reading CS Lewis, uh, mere Christianity Mm -hmm. and doing things like that to try to, and having conversations about these things would come in to the conversation. I would not shy away from them as the topics came up, but we weren't doing reading like this. It took a lot of time to get to a point where we trusted each other enough to say, maybe we can try doing this right now. Maybe this is what we should do. Um, so that's kind of us. That's kind of what we're doing. I don't know how it's going to go. <laughs> sure. When we get there, maybe I could come report back <laughs> if there's yeah. like a, something to report. 
but this is how we're beginning this conversation. And so, yeah, I'm doing this in small group settings and I'm being very passive in my pub more public uh, ministry. And I do feel guilty about that sometimes. Uh, I definitely do, but um, I don't know. Maybe we can have a debate about it if you guys like. I just, I often feel very uncomfortable with my passiveness in the pulpit. I feel mm. like I should be doing more, but I also know that I'm going to bear zero fruit when I do that. Uh, yeah. I, two thoughts that I have about your book choice. A white fragility seems to me the kind of couch to 5k version of dealing with racism. It's a great way so, of putting yeah, yeah. So people who've never thought about this stuff before, this gets you going. And then you can, after that, uh, jump up to a training for a half marathon. <laughs> but like, Cone is like a ultra long distance race. And so I feel like you want <laughs> scaffolding. Uh, two things that I would throw at you if they're open to reading fiction that makes a really strong point um, is Beloved by Toni Morrison will uh, convict you in so many places and is a book written by a black woman for black people. And so it, it shifts from, okay, I'm white. How do I deal with this? To let me just get some black experience uh, and really wrestle with what it is. Uh, so that's a good one to talk about, to talk about slavery, to talk about just the extremeness of slavery. Uh, and then also to, there's a good bit of really important religion in it. Because uh, Toni Morrison's, uh, it's not like she's going to develop a religious treatise, but she's, it's meaty. There's good stuff to talk about in it. And you might be able to do it in excerpts. There might be one or two passages that you don't have to tackle. Uh, or you could try The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler which is set in a dystopian future that is feeling more real day by day, but is also a book by a black author for not intended for white people and not considering our feelings um, and does a good job of um, being very black and considering black issues, but also dealing with some multicultural stuff in there too. Um, so that's if you don't want to jump straight into Cone, but really want to read a Black author and they're open to reading fiction. Those are both great and have changed my life. Um, yeah, yeah. I hear all you're saying. Um, and I feel like uh, if we want true growth, then it has to be done in these kind of discipling things. Like from the pulpit, there's only so much effect that you have. Um but also like that, I don't know, the only thing that my people are getting from me right now is the sermon because that's what they've asked for and that's what they've deified. And so I've tried to um, push them with the sermons without um, like pointing you, you person, I know that you're racist and you're the person that I, I know that you're loud racist and I need you to hear this because we have a couple of those uh, right. who don't, who are still really like, great genuine people will come and like move things for you will help out with anything in the world like are very very kind but also still have this thing that they have to deal with and so that's what i'm wrestling with is i think i in all of my benedictions i've been like beloved children of god nothing will change your belovedness however there are things about you that need to change um so yeah ethan you've been quiet for a long time give us thoughts 
Um, I really like what everything that's being said. Um, something that I think is important is, and this is particularly true, I think, for um, uh, uh, Christian folk and pastors who find themselves more on the left. Although this definitely needs to happen on the right. They, they just kind of lack the desire to do this um or the awareness i think a lot of times for this but like something that i think needs to happen is for us to really strive to frame all of this to frame racism and anti-racism work and white supremacy and, and things like that as um deeply spiritual and christian issues mm. like, like these are these are not just um this is not just politics this is not just um you know, I mean, politics is also a deeply spiritual issue, but like, you know, in our kind of common way of talking, we, we, we separate and we, we talk about different spheres and things like that. But for the Christian, it's all one sphere. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the, there, there is a very important reason why. So, so like I can imagine, and I've had congregants say, what does this have anything to do with being a Christian? Or what is this of anything to this being any topic, you know, any any topic that I, you know, whenever I talk about the importance of things like access to health care or, or, you know, all of the different political things that I think are really important. And I insist that these are important things to me precisely because of my faith. I mean, the I, I don't know if I would be a, a leftist if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. Like right. I probably I probably would just hide. You know, hmm, and, yeah. and and not really think too much about it, to be honest. Um, but like, I, I think I think that kind of work is really important to to insist on um, why it is that we as Christians have to do the hard spiritual work of being both publicly anti-racist and and inwardly anti-racist mm-hmm. um and the nice thing is is as methodists we have a built-in tradition and way of talking about that we call it sanctification you know right. and and so it's it's very it's very good to do that i i also think about in addition so when i think about the literature as well i think about like in addition to reading black and womanist thought and and reading you know, both theologically and, and sociologically or psychologically or, or whatever, or in fiction. I, I, I think about another thing. I think about, uh, A, the game-changing work of womanist fiction for me was Their Eyes Were Watching God. Ooh, um, also good. That, that's a game-changer for me. I, I read that book and I was like, wow, yes, I get it. You know, or I'm beginning to get it. Um, really, really great piece as well. Uh, but the other thing is... Um, built into our tradition, you know, kind of historically, are a number of pieces that make the question of how we personally and socially um, um, interact with and and are in relationship with vulnerable people. Um, there there are there is literature within our tradition that that problematizes that spiritually. Um, there's a, a piece, the popular patristic series just put this out not too long ago. They've, they've combined St. Basil the Great's, um, 
sermons on poverty and wealth into a into one book and that it's just called on social justice um uh really really great you know saint basil is ruthless when it comes to the way in which christians need to not only be spiritually oriented towards their wealth but but why that spiritual orientation is is so important on making sure we're caring for vulnerable people is that specifically about race and racism Uh, of course not but for me, I think part of the goal is to convince congregants that these issues are first and foremost spiritual concerns. Like, mm-hmm. like, like we can't, they can't just get away with being like, eh, I don't want to talk politics or I don't want that. You know, that's just incorrect. The other thing that comes to my mind is uh, Gregory of Nyssa's uh, homily in, on Easter is uh, um, the first known piece of literature in the West that is specifically anti-slavery. Yes. I have read um, excerpts from that. Yeah. And, and, and it's a quick read and Gregory of Nyssa takes the question of slavery and, and spiritual spiritualizes it in that makes it a Christian problem, like, like makes it a problem for Christian people, you know, and to solve and, and, and ultimately says says some really provocative things like how much is the image of god worth you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) how much how how much are you willing to pay for for god's image you know and 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 gregory of nissa does just some really provocative work there those are all texts that i think when when we have the opportunity to teach people in our church um those are really important texts to pull from in addition to the book of James, the book of the Gospels, you know, all of those things, uh, to be able to show them, no, no, no. You know, these, these things that you have been trained to believe are partisan political issues, are, they're just not, you know. It, it's, just not, it's just not true. The, the making sure that our social, our social and public lives and our inward and personal lives are oriented towards the full liberation and inclusion and care of uh, black and brown folks is a spiritual Christian concern. Why? It's really simple. All of those statues that you're worried about, you know, the wh- whether you know that you don't want to see disappear, um, there are real statues of Jesus Christ that are being destroyed and they're in black and brown people, you know, black and brown people are being destroyed. And though, and Matthew 25, the the savior tells us that that's where Jesus is, that, that the savior lives in those people. And, and that's not a, that's not a political thing. I'm just reading the gospel. That's, that's just, that's just what the savior teaches us. Um, And, and so not to not to kind of babble for a second, but like in my own ministry, that tends to be my strategy for talking a, a, about anti-racist and a, you know work and racism is to is to frame it always as sanctification, not to not to get rid of the words, not to not to make the words more palatable, not not to make it more palatable, but but to dispel the illusion. That that Christians are able to opt out, um, um, because that's I think 
you know, that's something that is, is sort of part of the lie mm-hmm. of, of the political illusion, right? Like the lie of the political illusion is that, oh yeah, you're, you're sort of able to opt in and opt out. Like you, you, you as a Christian don't have to have an opinion on health on, on brown kids at the border because that's a political issue. No, that's actually not. It's not a political issue. It's, it's a spiritual issue. And you're actually, you must have a stance on that or as a baptized Christian. And, and you confront them with that uh, from the perspective of their faith, using the language of the faith, using the language that they know, you know, um, which is a really contextual thing. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's part of the reason, like, Nick, you and I have talked about this a lot, and 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 Corey and I have talked about this. You know, as Corey has become more radical, and Joe and we've talked about this as well. Joe, I I don't see a lot of um, what do I want to say? I don't see a lot of fruit to borrow Nick's words in the loud prophetic sermon, um, mostly because m- mostly because. The, the way everything is kind of set up is, is that it, the loud prophetic sermon is based on shame. And if you simply can't shame people, then, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter. There is no fruit. There is no fruit that comes out of that. Um, there, there is so much insulation that, that the loud prophetic sermon, unless it is, unless the Holy spirit is so perfectly behind it, there's so much insulation that that folks have up that that keep them from really hearing that, and so um, when I preach on these subjects personally, and I do, it's, I don't I don't shy away from it. Um, I do my best to oh I don't know to to keep myself to to use anger well. You know, use anger artfully and 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 to not just kind of allow it to to shape the sermon, you know, and, and instead to I try to follow Gregory of Nyssa's example, like Gregory of Nyssa and his homily uh, is able to place sort of things, you know, where it, place the right question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are all catechized Christians. You know who bears the image of God. So I ask you, what is the price of the image of God? It's infinite. Okay. Well, I know some of you own slaves. So what, what is your excuse? You know, like, what are you doing? And, and so I don't know. I, that's what I tend to think about a lot is spiritualizing and, and, and doing our best to, to when we talk to church people, make this an obvious church and Christian problem. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it does just become ah. Well, you're just a left wing shill, or you've you know you. We can opt out of this. We don't need to worry about it. Right, yeah. Touch on that. Sorry, Joe. You have a thought that's more relevant. I'm sure. Go for it. I. It's a short one. What I'm hearing in that, uh, and also what I'm hearing in, in what Nick is saying, is that there's um, there's a scaffolding that we need to build with our churches around this so that they can see where we're coming from. Or there's, um, we almost have to show the math. We have to explain like that. I mean, we have to explain what the image of God is because some of them may have not heard preaching about the image of God. And then we have to explain why all humans bear the image of God and where that comes from because that's a step that they (laughs) might not make. 
um, necessarily not out of, um, intentional racism, but just of like thinking, oh, I bear the image of God. People who look like me bear the image of God. And they haven't done the work to take the next step to say, all humanity bears the image of God. Or if we're like being processy, like all creation, there's arguments. But, and then to take that next step to say, okay, if you bear the image of God and these people bear the image of God, how are we treating the image of God among us? And that um, for people who have only heard those feel-good sermons, they haven't done any of that work. And that work is, uh, I just laid it out in a couple steps. It's much more difficult for that, for people who have no idea what these concepts are. And so um, what, I think, uh, what I think the blasting prophetic sermon lacks is um, doing the work of getting people to follow where you're at and and actually educating them and getting them there um because they they just haven't had access to that that to to that yet and so i yeah i find that if we really want to see change in our people it is not that they have been taught this right like it's not like we're talking to people and say like you know what the the law says and so therefore behave like follow the law um like the prophets, the prophets can point to these verses and say, like, you know what God has commanded you to do when you're not doing it. Uh, like our people don't necessarily know what God has commanded them to do. And so it's a lot of educating that has to happen before you can then accuse somebody and say, you know better. Because like what I'm finding with this is people don't know better. And that's a failing of previous generations of white Christians in the United States uh, who had other agendas besides just following their, their brown skin savior. That was, a, that was my thought. Nick, what you got? Yeah. Well, pay you back off of you. What we're finding with what Ethan's phrase, we're teaching these people how to count. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's true though. I think what a lot of us are, I think, I knew this going into seminary. I, like, I was not a Christian growing up. I watched Christians from the outside. And like, so like, and we've had lots of conversations about like this. Monkeys in a zoo. Uh, yeah, mon- you monkeys in a zoo anyway. That's, anyway. Um, they're, almost, they're almost human. <laughs> <laughs> getting there. But no, like one of the things I think we know, but it's hard to really like, like, really know I know that sounds stupid but it is the fact that these people aren't really christian we're not dealing with the church that jesus described we're really not we're dealing with um american cultural centers and yeah. and uh so our job is marketed to us and we're trained as though we are leading disciples who are already baptized Christians when the reality is they may have done the rituals, but they're really not there. Right. Uh, and so we're, we're trying to raise up disciples when what we need to be doing is evangelism, you know, the dirty word that we're not supposed to use anymore because it has other connotations at this point. But like, but yeah, like we haven't even shown these people the good news yet. Yeah. They don't even know what they need to be freed from yet. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sandra Wheeler said that to to us, I think, in an ethics class. Nick, do you remember that? Mm-hmm. That we were having questions about, you know, we were just talking about um, just high level Christian ethics stuff, and and I was in a context at, in my PM and M where where I was trying to teach young people some of this, and and 
it just was not getting through. And, and as I was trying to work through this with Sandra, um, um, I finally, you know, she was like, Ethan, it sounds like that you have to begin from the beginning. Like you, you, you just have to start and be like, Oh, 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 okay. Do you know that you're a sinner? You know, <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you know that there, that, 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 you know, the world is fallen and that we stand in need of grace. Do you know that? Do you know, you know, and, and that's really, I think true. I think I agree with you, Nick. And this is something we lack in giving up confession in the Protestant traditions, Mm -hmm. um, because I have a lot of people who could look at you totally serious and honestly and go, oh, I know I'm a sinner. I know I, I know I need the grace of Jesus Christ. But if I looked at them and said, name your sins right now, they couldn't do it because they, they, they know the words, they know the language they're supposed to use as Christians. Uh, they know they're supposed to say that they know that they're sinners and that they need Christ. But the reality is most people don't actually know they're sinners because they couldn't name to you what their sins that day have been. Right. Because we're not, we're, we're people of ego, right? We don't want to admit uh, that we have these faults. We feel like we're under attack. So the second you point out any failing, like racist tendencies, um, you know, you don't have to be burning crosses in a white hood and talking about killing black people mm-hmm. to be racist in that sort of systematic, intrinsic way, mm-hmm. right? You don't. And we know that now because we've expanded our understanding of racism in our culture at this point. But if, if they don't have that understanding of that thing, they can't look at it and say, oh, yes, I am guilty of a sin of racism because today I did not repent for this, 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 or this thing that they would not think of as racist in their minds because we'd have to start from the very beginning. Um, sin at this point has, and has always really been true, does a really great job of convincing us that it's not really there right um of us thinking that we by saying i am a christian and i I do i I believe in god and i believe in christ so i'm good that means that like now therefore i no longer have anything to repent of even though i know i'm supposed to say i have things to repent of right it's it's a confusing thing but the um other thing I was going to say back to kind of the American cultural center's point is that like Ethan had been, was talking it when he was talking there for a minute and he kept talking about it not being political or or how politics plays a role in this, but we're at a time where we're so partisan on things and no matter what you say or how often you say, I'm not political, I'm not political, uh, Everything is political. And not only is everything political the way we would normally define political, but like everything is partisan in their minds, whether you mean it or not. Um, What you say is going to immediately register in our congregants' minds as either a Republican or a Democrat statement. Uh, And so how, how do you even navigate preaching for people who are automatically going to classify things you say even if you're not talking about a specific political point, right. they're automatically going to put you in one of those two boxes. 
Um, so last week, two weeks ago, it was Flag Day. Did you guys even know that? My, it's my grandfather's birthday, uh, and so I always know when Flag Day is because it's uh, my grand. This is my grandfather who passed a couple years ago. My mom always gets very sad on Flag Day, so I always know what it is because that's when I do my pastoral care for my mother. That makes sense. I had no idea. I had no idea it was Flag Day, and I went up. I was taking my dog on a walk around the church property, and I saw that right beside where my like makeshift pulpit area is for for outside church right now, somebody had hung a huge flag, American flag, on the side of the building, and I like immediately texted it to Ethan. Was like, "What is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why is this here?" Um, and I bumped into one of my lay leaders whose husband put it up. And she's like, I'm so mad at him for putting that up. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, I love you, Cheryl. Uh, uh, but, you know, it, I was like, why? And I was looking at my calendar on my phone. And I was like, it's not 4th of July for a while. Why are we hanging the flag? And the only thing I could think was like, all of the racial tension that was happening and how it's immediately classified as an unpatriotic thing to be on the side of Black Lives Matters right now, right? Right. And so all I could think as I stood there staring at this giant flag hanging on the side of my church was, somebody is trying to get us to make some kind of anti-Black Lives Matter statement, Mm -hmm. Uh, which wasn't true. Uh, She was like, it's flag day, and he wanted to hang up this flag. And I have this whole thing, like I think the flag in the worship space is idolatry, and I don't want it there. And I think most young pastors feel that way um but so i was like young liberal pastors fair enough i have some conservative pastor friends who also feel that way really uh for the record yes where did they go Uh, to school wesley uh (laughs) (laughs) but it's true there are some young conservative pastors who also would prefer the flag not be in the worship space uh even if they're fine with wearing it out in public all the time and things like that. And breaking the flag code. Yeah, sure. But they draw their line and I'm like, I appreciate that. Um, But I didn't fight too hard. I was like, make sure you call the head of the trustees just to make sure he's okay with you hanging this year because it is technically a building issue. Um, And they were fine. So it was like, fine, I will let you have your flag up for flag day the live stream wasn't going to pick it up anyway. It was just focused on me. So it wasn't going to be in that picture. I was like, fine, I don't care. I'm not going to die on this hill today. Right. And so we do the whole service. I don't mention the flag the entire time. It's just there huge in everybody's face. And I just kind of move on to me. I didn't even know flag day was like a thing. Like I did, but to me, Flag Day, I always thought Flag Day was kind of like, it's Sugar Cookie Awareness Day. Like, oh, that's, (laughs) today's the day we all eat sugar cookies. Like, oh, it's Flag Day. Cute. Whatever. We don't bring that up in worship services ever. Uh, It doesn't make sense. So I said nothing. I got, I got a complaint about it. Um that uh i the it was on the live feed somebody commented on it and then the same person brought it up in our ad board meeting and started it by saying i would just like it on the record that i was very upset with the worship service uh that we had this beautiful flag hanging and we did not say the pledge of allegiance and everybody was quiet and we were like noted and then we moved on but like 
Because that's something that they have to unpack because for them, like the United States, their conception of America and their conception of Christianity are so wedded together that to attack America is to attack Christianity and to not say the pledge is to attack Christ. And they they just don't get it. And I am therefore a liberal shill. There you go. Simply by not saying the Pledge of Allegiance, even with the giant flag hanging, I am automatically, even though I gave a very neutral saying almost nothing sermon that week, uh, I was being a liberal by, by doing that in that space. So how do we even begin Mm-hmm. to have a conversation on racism in the pulpit. Even right. if it's a kind approach, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be screaming and yelling like a fire and brimstone preacher uh, to automatically lose your audience. Mm-hmm. Because they've all, all, the second you start with it, they go, liberal, I'm done. And they just check out. Uh, I don't know. To me it really fucks me up. I mean, you're going to be honest because I'd love to be a fire and brimstone preacher on this. <laughs> stuff. And I often think about how, if I wasn't paid by the church and Ethan, and I have joked about this going off and starting our whole own endeavor. Uh, and like, if I was doing that and I didn't, and my financial security was not based on what I was preaching that week. And if they liked me or not, I'd fire and brimstone the hell out of it with, with that stuff. And if they didn't like it, they could leave and that's fine. And is it the most effective way to change certain people? No, but you know what it would do? Bring more young people into the church and we would have young people gathering in a Christian way, uh, very differently. Um, and that would be its own kind of victory. And I would love to do that, but that's just not what I can do here. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the call of this charge. Uh, but I often feel very guilty uh, for not doing it. Um, but yeah, just can't even begin if we don't unpack the patriotism and they do not like that. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah. So I think that I take a pretty, uh, how do I want to put it? Uh, my church also has a very big, and, and this has been documented on the podcast, a very, a very big, um, uh, Memorial day service. Veterans Massive. Day? Veterans Day. Thank you. Veterans Day service. Massive service. Um, uh, the two biggest things are the search for peace and Veterans Day, and that's it. Uh, other than that, it's, you know, we, can, we could close up and nobody would really care. Um, not really. But uh, one of the things that I think is at least very true of my context, and, and I really don't think it's that – I honestly don't think it's that complicated – uh, I, you know, of, of an analysis for at least my context, maybe, maybe I'd be willing to extend it to, to others as well, is um, the, the reason why uh, Veterans Day and, and, and kind of patriotism and this sort of matrix of everything is sort of wrapped up really strongly in the church I serve is really very simple. They, they believe in veterans and in patriotism and in the country you know to save them mm, mm-hmm. like i mean you know what I mean? it's it's actually just kind of that simple like there there's a real emotional and faithful connection they have faith um there are people of faith for for that and and uh it's one of the reasons why um 
my being critical of it is seen as distasteful. Like it's seen, at least among, among lots of folks at my church, my being critical of Veterans Day service is seen as distasteful, not just from a, uh, you're, you know, because I'm not so stupid that I would ever criticize this in front of a veteran or in front of the diehards, but I'd criticize it in front of um, folks that I trust who I, who I would say are really, really committed to being followers of Jesus. You know, I might criticize it gently and, and, and they see it as they, they see my criticism as distasteful. And I'm like, why, why is it distasteful? And, and it's really very simple. It's, it's the same reason why, um, you know, folks get, why, why we can't, why, why it's, it's considered bad to like criticize people's understandings of God or, or whatever. It's, it's cause this is what they believe in pastor. It's what they believe in. That's mm-hmm. what they have faith in. And so it's kind of, you're kind of being silly, you're kind of being rude. You know, I'm like, you're right. Because we're talking about ultimately very different belief systems and very different religions. And, you know, I, I actually think it's more helpful to approach it as an interreligious dialogue. Um, you know, I, uh, Matt, who listens, Matt, uh, my friend, uh, and friend Hi, of Matt. the podcast. Hi, Hi Matt. Good, good to hear. Good, to, good to have you listen to us, Matt. Um, uh, will occasionally say things to me like, you know, just let them have this one, Ethan, just let them have it. And I'm like, yeah, I know why you say that, buddy. Like, (laughs) I mean, I do like, I guess, I guess we can let them have their fun, you know, but that's, and that's sort of my approach. A lot of, for, for a lot of this stuff too. I think what is damaging though is and Nick, I think, and and Joe, you've both identified it. Is is all of this runs a lot deeper than we think. Mm-hmm. Um, you you must first convince church people. It, how about I put it this way? If we are interested in being pastors about this, we could just not be like like that. That's always an option. The the other option is we just go, ah, eh, who cares? you know, who, who cares, who cares about the job? Like who cares about this element? Let's just do, do what we want. I'm not saying that's cool. We brought up the Corey option. I'm not saying that's Corey. That's the Corey option. I'm really not, but Corey, but, but as Joe, you said, Corey does not prioritize the job. He prioritizes, you know, what he believes to be correct and how he believes he needs to do it. And then, and I respect that. I think that's fine. Mm -hmm. But like, but but like we we could just decide. Ah, I don't really care. You know, I don't really care about these folks who are um, uh, uh, in a in a another religion who happens to go to my church. You know, I don't really care that these folks are worshiping a false god or or subscribe to beliefs that are you know all over the place in terms of Gnostic or pagan or you know. A, a number of things. Um, I don't care about their souls for as much as that, that exists. I guess we mm-hmm. can do that. And, and I'm not trying to be, you know, like I'm not trying to be facetious. Like that is an option because it is actually not our job to save everybody. That that's not, that's not how that works. Um, I don't know that. However, if we don't do that, I don't think we can do our job well. 
And I think that that's what makes this hard because, and, and why I don't, and why I, from the beginning of the podcast, you know, when we, when Joe and I started this, why I insisted on, on making this a, a, about a job, like mm-hmm. we have a job. The job is not to save souls. It's not to um, uh, be a professional baptized Christian. It is to run this nonprofit and to do and to fulfill this mission in this community right now. That is the job. And so there is a sense in which, in order to, which is why pastoral ministry is messy and not clear cut, and why we can't we can't afford the purity, if you will, mm-hmm. of of a prophet. You know, mm-hmm. be, because eventually we we have to say, okay, well, that just means we're just real bad at our job. Like, <laughs> right. just, we just must suck at this. You know, we just must suck at this job. Where because part of our job is to take a uh somebody who only ever gets emotional when she listens to Celine Dion sing God bless America which happens at my church every veterans day you know we take mm-hmm. we take that person who who after that is over says i really feel the spirit for the first and only time in this space every year mm-hmm. we take that person and i have to draw her into ministry with Matt and i have to bring them together and i have to say Together, we are going to do the work of the church. I have to do that. That's my job. If I, I guess I could just suck at it. I guess I could just be a shitty pastor and just mm-hmm. be like, hey, we'll leave Celine Dion lady behind and, and we'll, just, we'll just do whatever. But ultimately then I, I've decided that I'm just not going to be a very good pastor today. you know. And I think yeah. that that's... Uh, is that an excuse? Is that an excuse for me for why I do not maintain a kind of ideological purity over this stuff? Maybe. I guess it could be. Uh, ultimately, I'm leaving in a week. So, right. like, you know, what do I know? But uh, but you know what? There's a pretty strong part of me that, that doesn't see it as an excuse. It just sees it as reality. You mm, know, this yeah. is the reality of living in a pluralistic, multicultural church. And mm-hmm. if I can just def- defend... The part of me inside of me that feels guilty about not just fire and brimstoning it up um, and doing those things, I I worry that by being too concerned about driving people away with what I see as the truth, that what I'm doing is continuing to allow. Let let's stick to the racism topic specifically, right? What I'm doing is I'm allowing the racism inherent within my church to continue to feel legitimized by their faith in doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas running them out, quote unquote, more or less, I mean, they'd be running themselves out ultimately, but uh, by not uh, prioritizing, bringing them together with everybody in doing the mission of the church, which when we say that I'm assuming we're talking about, you know, uh, local community outreach, you know, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, taking care of the widow and the orphan. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm primarily focused on that, then they get to continue to feel like they are justified within Christianity in holding that belief that they have. And mm-hmm. I struggle with that one. 
You know what I mean? Because ultimately I'm behaving right now as a pastor the way you just described, Ethan. That's ultimately the philosophical path I have taken on how to practice my job. Um, but inside, the morality in me says, God, I wish I had. Corey is my boldest friend. We've always said this. We call him Sir Cornelius the Bold. And <laughs> I. Today we do. <laughs> and I am ultimately always been very jealous of the boldness of my friend Corey. Do I behave in ministry the same way he does right now? No. Do I fault him for it? No, because there's a very strong part of me inside that just wishes to death that I could be as bold as Corey is, just blasting it out there. Do I think Corey's going to change hearts and minds by doing it that way? Do I think I'm going to change the racist mind by doing that? No, but if what I do is drive them away from the church, I can create more space for other people who are more interested in the pursuit of the justice causes of the church. And we might be able uh, to continue to delegitimize racism and injustices within the faith tradition, even if that means some people must be pushed out sometimes. And I struggle with which one is more correct, <laughs> I guess, uh, because I think, because like I said, I'm very torn. Like there's two sides of me on this. Like I feel both ways about it. And ultimately, I, I worry that I choose uh, the more passive side because I worry I'm just actually a coward who's too afraid of the fallout uh, mm. and doesn't want to deal with the conflict. And I use the idea of doing better ministry as my rationalization and cop-out for the fact that I'm actually just a coward and too afraid to do the bold things that need to be done, no matter how much I get hurt in the process or other people get hurt in the process. So I don't know. Um, that's just my, I hate the term devil's advocate. As Corey said recently, the devil doesn't need any more advocates. <laughs> um, but just to discuss both sides of where I am right now on this topic, it just felt like maybe bringing that side up is important here. I don't know. Yeah. I want to say briefly, um, that as white people, we have the choice of how we want to confront this. Um, and that the, the thing about being in kind of rural communities is that um, it is much more difficult to be able to figure out the way in which our not confronting the racism in our churches is actively harming black and brown people. Like, um, there's just not a ton of uh, black people in my community, though I am learning that there's more of them than I thought there were in the in the town that I live in. But in the the town in which I serve, it, oh, it's pretty white. Uh, and the the bigger concern is how we're treating um, Hispanic migrant workers and how we're treating uh, American Indians. And so, like the the work that we need to untangling white supremacy really is going to benefit this particular group of people. Uh, but the easiest way to untangle white supremacy is to look at the horror of what we have done to black people in this country and then to decide not to do that harm anymore. Um, 
And so for all that we want to disciple people slowly, the harm has to stop now. And so what's our role in getting the harm to stop now? Or is, are we doing both at the same time? Like that's the, that's what I've been doing with the statue is I've been saying there is a slower uh, boil happening at my church in terms of trying to figure out how to get people to be anti-racist at my church. But there is a real concrete way in which I can live into my call of the gospel in the community by combating something that is doing actual harm at this moment. And so that's the, that is, um, if we're recentering the argument to say that like, what is really crucial here are black and brown lives that are being lost. How are we helping their cause? And sometimes that's in our church doing this, this anti-racist work and trying to get people to come along with that and dismantling racism within the church, though that might just mean dismantling the United Methodist Church, which we've talked about before. Um, but like maybe, maybe that's it or yeah, it's, it is hard to know. There are so many things that need to be done, right? Like the work is plentiful, but the harvest or the, what's the thing? The harvest, the harvest is, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few Mm. is a Jesus quote. Mm. Uh, and, and that's the thing is, um, maybe we are, maybe our job as pastors is to raise other people who can help with the harvest. That's not going to be our whole churches right now. And yeah, yeah. Finding the way that we can actively stop harm against black and brown people while also harvesting other people who can help, getting other people who can help us. With harvest. With the metaphor. Um, yeah, Joe, I completely agree with that. Okay. Well, so I, we, we need to find a way to end the episode. <laughs> don't be a racist, friends. Don't be racist. <laughs> don't, don't be racist. Racism's bad. Um, the way you're not a racist is by just not being one. Take your call as a baptized Christian seriously. Your vocation as a baptized Christian mm-hmm. seriously. Uh, the vows you took in your baptism seriously to oppose the forces of evil and wickedness and injustice wherever they present themselves. And that means acknowledging that you are a sinner and knowing your specific sins, which means evaluating yourself. And as Joe says, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to, we were just going to keep talking for you. No, continue. (laughs) I was going to say that sounds uh, much like a sermon, Nick. So I think you figured that out. Just preach on baptism. Uh, well, Ethan, will you sign us off for this episode? Yeah, this has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe with special guest, Pastor Nick, and we will see you next time.